Welcome to the CESI podcast series produced by the Centre for Education, Statistics and Evaluation, or CESI, part of the New South Wales Department of Education. We're filming live from Greenacre Public School in southwest Sydney. My name's Karina Dennis. I'm head teacher teaching and learning at Sydney Girls High School. I'm joined by Dr. Ben North from CESI and Kate Stilwell, assistant principal from Greenacre Public School. And we're talking about revisiting gifted education. Ben, I'd like to ask you, please explain what is a gifted student? So gifted students are traditionally those students with the potential to achieve very highly um, and often an advanced developmental potential in a certain area or domain. So in a school sense, they're often the kids who have the capacity to achieve in, let's say, the top 10%. The exact number is contested and different researchers use sort of different definitions but we're typically seeing those students with really advanced developmental potential um, in their learning. So what is so different about the teaching strategies that we would use with gifted learners? I guess one of the things with our gifted students is that because they have the potential to be advanced in their learning, or they sometimes are definitely advanced mm -hmm. and are ahead of other students the same age, they may have some different learning needs in that if you've got a student who's already mastered the skills and content that's being taught in class, then effectively they're not learning anything new if they can already do it. So that often um, breaks down into what's required in class is that additional challenge. Or students often learn best when they are challenged comfortably, you know, they're trying to learn, they're given the chance to learn new things to be extended from where they currently are. But if you've got a student who is already ahead of uh, maybe the syllabus or the teaching program, and then that's when you, you need to take a different approach. What's new from the current research? One of the big things that I think has happened in the last 10 years is there's a much bigger focus on effective practices in gifted education, and that really centres around the topic of talent development. Mm -hmm. So talent development is a term that's used quite broadly to think about how you take students who might have an existing level of achievement but they've got really high potential. What are the things, what are the learning practices and, and habits and how do we help those students become high achievers? That's one of our key things in New South Wales and our Education Act is that all students you know, have a right to an education that helps them meet their potential and work towards growing and improving so that they can do the very best that they can. In talent development research and study, that's that real focus, is looking at, well, we've got some students with really high potential here. How do we help them become the highest achievers possible? Do you think there are any students who um, maybe would benefit from more opportunities to, to be enrolled in gifted education programs? Yeah, and that's another big new thing too as well. Although it's not a new problem, there's just been a lot more research done recently, and it really centres around the equity issue. Sometimes gifted education and students from more disadvantaged backgrounds have not always matched up in, in practices. And we see that with more recent research into the underrepresentation of students from some backgrounds in gifted education programs. Some of the most recent work of the last 10 years and even the last couple of years has really focused on, well, why is this? And we know that there might be students who come from more disadvantaged backgrounds, but why are they consistently unable to maybe access the programs that will give them the greatest chance through here. What we see with a lot of students from say lower SES backgrounds is that they often rely very heavily on school to provide the learning opportunities that they need to develop their talent. 
they may not have the resources outside of school, either because of busy parents or parents who maybe don't have as much educational experience themselves to get that additional help. So for us in public education, that's a, that's a real challenge, but it's a, it's a, it's a big honour and pri privilege to work with such students because we know that there's so much work that can be done. And in many ways, that means that um, we have a, a doubly important task because we know that we are those who can really help a lot of kids um, get the best outcomes that they can. And Kate, you have a lot of uh, students in your school who come from a diverse range of socioeconomic uh, groups. That's right. What's your, what's your experience in, in that context and how do you think this new literature review might sort of help um, accommodate some of the practices that we could be using in schools? Yes, well, without having professional development and looking at the research, it's very easy to overlook these students. Uh, we have refugee students here as well, uh, students uh, who are still developing their English and with their parents, as you said, their parents may not speak English at home, which makes it doubly hard for them. And it, it's, it's good to be able to look for the characteristics and other markers that they may need more help and, and to give them that help. And some of these recent studies have shown us that if they're not picked up early, if these uh, disadvantaged students aren't picked up and identified as needing uh, uh, programs that support their gifted needs, then they just fall further and further behind in terms of achieving their potential and we really see that, that opening up of that excellence um, gap, if you like, between the, the socially um, and economically advantaged versus those who are not. Yeah, well, it's very easy for them to just go underground, really, and, mm. and not be noticed in a class or, or be treated as if they were just maybe below average ability. Mm. So without knowing what you're looking for, they can very easily get overlooked. From the literature review, what are some of the key uh, themes that come through in terms of how we can best uh, turn potential into actual talent um, development? What's really interesting is that we sometimes see in more popular stories that researchers or uh, people sometimes like to say it's one thing. There's just one reason. And for example, the 10,000 hours rule was popularised uh, a little while ago. The idea that with 10,000 hours of practice, anyone can become great at something. And often with, with such things, I like to sort of say it's it's just a little bit more complicated than that. It's not always just about practice, but that's going to be a factor. Certainly what we see in particular, one of the really key factors is about the quality of learning experiences, and that's where the teacher's role comes in. Now, as a teacher, it's great to see, you know, it's really wonderful to see that um, really great teachers are a solution here, because, I mean, they are the solution to many things in education, but it shows just how important that role is. So having quality learning experiences that are challenging enough, that helps um, extend and stretch students, getting good support, quality feedback, uh, use of things like formative assessment to help teachers understand where students are at in their learning and then try and extend them from there, they're just some of the factors that come into play. Really providing gifted students with, with a challenge at the right time is critical to their, to their development, as I understand. Yeah, it's what we see with a lot of bright kids at school is that they can become easily bored. For a lot of gifted students, they might be capable of working at a level well beyond their age level. So you might have an eight-year-old student, but realistically, cognitively, they've got the capability of a 10-year-old or maybe even a 12-year-old in some cases. And that means that they need to be challenged at that level as well. If they're not getting learning at the right level, then a lot of kids will become very bored, start to switch off and possibly disengage from school. 
One of the things that I think is um, interesting from the Lit Review in particular was there's, a, there's an area of gifted education that has a really strong research base. And even looking back at it again, was, it was great to see that there's even more work done. And that centres around academic acceleration. So that's what we get when students... We, we're trying to match the learning to where the students are at in their development. But like what you've both mentioned, sometimes that's for these are for students who are literally a year or two ahead of their syllabus. So um, in some cases, it's, it's appropriate and shown to be a really highly effective practice for students to potentially skip ahead in a subject or sometimes all of their subjects. Some people raise concerns about whether they'll have um, it'll have any impact on their social or emotional um, uh, aspects of the student's well-being. D is there any evidence to suggest that 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 grade skipping or acceleration would have any impact on a student's social and emotional well-being? In reality, the the evidence base for academic acceleration is extraordinarily strong, and the overwhelming majority of studies show positive academic outcomes but even um, either neutral to positive social and emotional outcomes as well. Sometimes it's, this is a reflection of the fact that for a lot of students, they build friendships based on um, common interests. And if you're a kid who's a little bit further ahead and you've got very different interests to kids the same age, it might be harder to make friends with students your own age. But if you're sort of at least at and matched with the same level as other students, then it gives you that chance to share common interests with kids and build the friendships. In your opinion, Kate, what do you think uh, the, the best strategies are for supporting gifted learners? Well, training staff is, is the start of it. It underpins everything. And once they know what to look for, they can be encouraged to try a variety of things, uh, very high expectations, uh, formative assessment to make sure they're okay at grade level and then teaching above, not stopping at grade level, but going above and beyond. Um, higher order thinking in everything you do. I tell them with their program to look at it and say where's the higher order thinking and make sure that's always in there. So I did professional development with the staff in 2012 when we first decided to have the extension classes. We did three, three sessions, uh, one on just what is giftedness in general, uh, one on identification and then one on how do you provide for them after they're identified. And that developed a, a dialogue in the school. Uh, people are always talking about it. Uh, they'll come to me and say they feel a child would be good in the extension class. And, and there's, there's a real conversation happening around gifted. Here. That's great. Karina, what about in your school, in leading professional learning in your role? Yes, as Head Teacher Teaching and Learning, uh, a big part of it is providing the um, opportunities for our gifted students to uh, be able to extend uh, and, and, and expand the breadth of their knowledge. Uh, I think taking uh, the point we raised earlier about the need for formative assessment to find out exactly what the student already knows and to then be able to give them opportunities to learn at greater level of complexity and abstraction and pace that matches what their needs are. Being mindful that uh, gifted students are all individuals and all different and that some are ready to, to move more quickly through certain programs than others. Others have different interests that will take them into extension activities that are quite uh, distinct from other gifted students. In our school, we have a, a range of different um, programs that we have to try and uh, support our students in that regard. We provide opportunities for them to seek more depth in their um, uh, learning through uh, additional projects that they can undertake that enable them to look more deeply at certain uh, aspects mm. that they're interested in, uh, sort of fun, friendly, problem-solving competitions that they can either do internally within the school 
or enrol in externally that give them a chance to have kind of open-ended types mm. of um, uh, uh, questions. Uh, and just also more general um, uh, extension and enrichment programs around debating or um, chess club and, and activities that really give those students a chance to work with other like-minded peers mm. who share those interests and want to take their own learning further. Yeah, fantastic. Kate, I know your school's got quite a lot happening in terms of extracurricular yeah. and enrichment activities because you were telling me about it before and I, I almost lost track. There were so many <laughs> things happening. Can you tell us a bit about what your school does there? Well, we're in the public speaking competition, the multicultural public speaking competition, and we have had state winners last year and this year. Uh, we, we've had Atlassian, the software company, come in and run a six-week program called Hack in the Box with us with volunteers from Atlassian, that was fantastic. We have after-school chess, we play, we play against private schools and, and public schools in the district. Mm. Um, we do Maths Olympiad and the ICAS testing, of course, Tournament of Mimes. So why are those programs so important in a school like yours, where you've got a very diverse range of students, some from more disadvantaged backgrounds? Well, as you, as you said previously, the parents may not have access to a lot of this sort of thing or for, for any extracurricular activities. They're probably not going to school holiday things and, and weekend things. So it's really important that we step in and provide it for them, uh, including driving them to chess. Yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, that's really exciting because I mean that's I think they're really good examples of those sort of opportunities to learn that are needed uh, for students to sort of reach high achievement, and that's where we in schools can really make that difference. Do you see teachers at your school looking more and more towards the literature to find out what kind of strategies work best? Yes, we've really been encouraging that, um, especially this year, to see what, what the research says and then what is best practice from, from the research and then to implement that in, in all areas of the school. I think teachers are starting to see it as empowering mm. in many ways yeah. and, and really embracing the, the evidence mm. as, a, as a way of shaping mm. their, their practice and um, I guess sometimes supporting it or sometimes challenging their thinking and maybe mm. looking at it with mm. fresh eyes in terms of what might be a better strategy. It makes you feel confident that you are doing the right thing. Mm. Well, yeah, I really see that and I feel that too is it because it's, I've worked with so many teachers who work incredibly hard um, and put in immense amounts of hours, time, effort and passion and you want to make sure that that all counts. Mm, you want yeah, the greatest impact you can yeah, and that's, that's what, the right thing. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> and that's what the teachers want. They want the best for the kids so we, we need to make sure teachers are equipped with that best mm. evidence and best research just so we can make the greatest difference we can. And in the literature review, it's really exciting to see that a lot of that research is from Australian scientists and researchers and educators. Um, some of the cognitive load theory that uh, is discussed in, in some of our, um, our readings is definitely um, coming out of some great work done by one of the Australian universities. Absolutely. It's, um, it, it's good to have that mix of, obviously there's some really strong international research and um, it's great to see some important work happening in, in many countries, but at the same time we need to be able to see and adapt that to the context in Australia, um, which can be quite different. I know schools can be quite different, but that's our job as teachers is to adapt the, the research to the needs of the kids in front of us and the specific context of our students um, and to be as informed as possible in that is going to help us do the best job we can. One of the more interesting things in the recent research has really shown the importance of how teachers kind of go about implementing the greater depth 
and breadth of learning with bright kids. Certainly, I was probably taught uh, originally that gifted kids maybe didn't need any scaffolding or any structure in their learning. You know, they could just go free and teach themselves. But what's been interesting to see is that that's not the case. There's a really bright kids just as much as anyone really um, get just as much out of scaffolded, explicit teaching, good, clear learning experiences, having the teacher there to teach them, not just teaching themselves, especially when first learning skills, knowledge and content. But then once mastered, then that gives you the opportunity to go into greater depth and do some self-guided um, projects or some sort of inquiry and research. A lot of it comes down to some really important research done into an area called cognitive load. And that's a theory that centers around that as humans, we have a working memory with where information is taken in and processed and then sort of thought about and consolidated to long-term memory. And cognitive load theory is one of these things that also applies to bright kids. What we see is we often see a very common uh, level of working memory between bright students and average ability students but the difference is for a lot of advanced students is they're possibly able to process things faster or can be more efficient in the way that they uh, store or commit information to long-term memory. So for that reason it's important that students aren't overloaded in their learning. Good structured clear tasks uh, with clear expectations, hopefully high expectations are just as important for bright kids as they are for any other student. What's different though is that um, for some students who are advanced in their learning is that they may take fewer repetitions to master skills. They can move through topics faster. Um, and so at that point there we get an effect called the expertise reversal effect. That's um, essentially where if you just keep kids practicing too long with too much support and you don't start to take the scaffolding away like Kate said in the scaffolding metaphor, then that can actually be detrimental to learning. So that's when you need to open it up and create a bit more open-ended learning. So what are some of the strategies that can be used to reduce the cognitive load for gifted learners? So generally the strategies fall under the broader umbrella of explicit teaching, um, and that is having really good, clear, linear, structured learning activities. So scaffolding is an example. Worked examples can be where we're sort of reducing the focus and the information and just sort of looking specifically on specific skills and master them first before then building in more facts or more complicated scenarios. Uh, they're all kind of good examples. What we want to try and do is ensure that students have got the support in their learning. And I guess I really want to stress that this is sometimes contrary to some of the um, previous practices we did where it became almost easy for, okay, we've got a really bright kid and they're ahead of the class, we'll just send them to the library and they can just you know, do their own research and learning. And like what Kate sort of said, we, they need teachers, <laughs> you know? I, I, I truly believe all students deserve a good teacher and good teaching and good learning experiences and, and bright kids are no different. And I think it's important that we keep that in mind, that although there are certainly times where we want students to do some self-directed learning and to do some projects and some research, that ultimately um, it's really important that they're not 10-year-olds just teaching themselves the whole way. And that's why mm. we've got expert teachers. Kate, do you have any examples where you've used strategies to try to reduce the cognitive load for gifted learners? Yes, we enter the Maths Olympiad competition every year and for my new year fives who've just come out of year four in a regular school, it's, it's quite a challenge to them when they see those questions. And I've tried various 
uh, ways of helping them. And I found even better than a worked example was to just teach the strategies in isolation and then give them a question and say, for this question, you need this strategy. This is a guess and check question. This is a work backwards question. And then I can withdraw that and they, they do very well then in the Maths Olympiad competition. So I guess it's probably like what you just said there, Kate, there's a fair bit of expert knowledge here that's required to, to talk it through and that's why teachers are so important to do this. I know for myself in my pre-service teacher education, I've crossed four years in a Bachelor of Education degree, I think I had about 45 minutes of study was on gifted education and how to teach bright students. And a good 20 minutes of that 45 minute class was spent arguing over some of the topics as well. So. I guess that's a challenge, especially if teachers haven't necessarily had the training or the experience and practice in these skills. Mm. I think often we, we learn something early on in our professional training that sticks with us and we carry through and there's that need for constant professional learning to stay up to date with the best effective strategies for teaching gifted learners and I think that underscores the importance of ongoing professional learning not just for early teachers but ongoing uh, professional development for teachers who are even more senior stages. You have a quite an extensive professional learning program for uh, supporting gifted education at your school. Could you tell us more about that? Yes, we, we try to bring it in as often as we can whenever there's um, like a development day where there's time to bring that in, uh, we'll do that. And at this time of year when we're starting to form classes for next year, that's another opportunity to start really looking into identification, uh, what sort of kids would benefit from moving in through our extension classes. So it's really important to keep it going. I guess that's a good point about revisiting it too, mm. is because this is the sort of thing where research is changing. Yes. We're finding out yes. new things. Yeah. And even um, from when I did sort of postgraduate study 10 years ago in this, mm. there's new things. Mm. You know, new mm. research is coming through. And I think we really owe it to our students that you know, we are equipped with the best strategies mm. and we've got giving them the best chance in, in all ways to... Uh, be supported in their learning and their development and that sometimes means that we've got to really keep our skills sharp mm. it's what we owe to the kids and Ben I know you feel passionate about sort of trying to debunk some of the myths that exist sort of broadly but even within the yes. professional uh, area for teachers like sometimes mm. some of the myths even pervade our own profession and I think you feel quite passionate about trying to turn <laughs> yeah. those around it's it's where we've got to be really critical and think about the research and evidence because sometimes what we see shared on social media, on Twitter and on Facebook, they might be certain statements that sound good or they feel right, but they might not be supported by the research. And that's, that's a real frustration. Certainly um, in the gifted education field, we often do see sort of some myths that relate to who these students are and why. One of the ones that's most probably frustrating for me is the belief that our brightest kids are always really bright, shiny children. They're the Sheldon Coopers or the um, Hermione Grangers that we see in sort of fiction. Um, but by and large, a, you know, they're kids and they come from all backgrounds and they come from um, all areas of the state, all areas of the country as well. And it's important that we don't take any pre-existing notions into um, how we work with students. Mm. There's that... Oh old saying I think about that you see as much heterogeneity within gifted students as you do within the whole population that they're a very heterogeneous group of students oh, and totally. you can't sort of summarize them by one sort of profile yeah there's a, there's a huge range in through there and they're not always going to be 
uh, nice teacher-pleasing kids <laughs> who do really neat bookwork and have nice handwriting and always do their homework on time. They're still, they're still kids, they're children, um, and they all need that sort of support. That's why I'm particularly excited about some of the equity questions. Mm. What we do see some, um, in a lot of the data is some real gaps in achievement between students from different backgrounds. Um, so that's often what's referred to as excellence gaps. Mm. Um, and that's the gap between students from different backgrounds in terms of their patterns of achievement. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, we see that in Australia too, just as in America. We've got students from some certain groups in society where a larger percentage of those students will be those who get the higher marks or achieve the high bands in on some assessments and some data sources compared to students from other groups. We talk a lot about um, closing the gap, for example, for Aboriginal students, mm. but it's important that we don't just take a preconceived notion that we're just trying to lift up um, achievement for a certain group, such as um, our Aboriginal students, but that we have some really bright Aboriginal kids there who too also, you know, we want to support up to the highest levels of achievement as well. Um, and that can be the same from students from refugee backgrounds, from low SES backgrounds, whatever that might be. All of our students deserve the opportunity to do the best that they can. And that would be students with disabilities as well in terms yes. of providing um, strategies for identifying and then supporting them in their, their learning. It, it, it's an odd one, but there, are, there are, sometimes you do meet people who find it hard to maybe reconcile that you can have a student that has really high academic ability, but they also have a disability of some mm. sort. Um, so those gifted students with disability are often those who um, sometimes are not picked up in assessments or there's a greater focus on maybe assisting or supporting the disability than there is um, supporting their area of talent. And what we see with a lot of the gifted students with disabilities, they need both. Mm. You know, mm. may need the additional help and support um, to assist with their learning because otherwise the disability might be something that inhibits their learning or makes it harder for them to show their full range of achievement. But these students as well um, will need the same level of support in many ways as others to achieve and to be extended and pushed in their learning just the same. Yes, you have to be careful not to leave them out of mm. the extension classes. So that it needs to be built into your identification practices. And that comes back to the professional learning that you were saying yes. earlier, Kate, about the need to help staff feel comfortable both identifying and then supporting the needs of gifted learners with socioeconomic disadvantage or, um, uh, as you said, students who come from refugee backgrounds or have um, additional disabilities that require further consideration. Yes, they need to know that giftedness and disability can exist at mm. the same time in the same child. Mm. And once they know that, then they can see it, start looking for mm. it. And that, that access question is an important one because, I mean, the research shows us that if students are unable to access the advanced learning, then they tend not to be able to get the advantage and gain from the more challenging things. And it becomes a bit of a circular mm. issue. Um, ensuring you've got the real better equity of access is an important thing here. And that's going to be a key thing for us, I think, and a key challenge in education is to make sure that we're giving students the, the opportunities to learn and, um, and helping them really provide the chances so that really students, regardless of background, have got the, the opportunity to, to meet and reach their potential. You raise a really interesting point there because of, uh, I was reading the literature review that talk about that kind of cumulative effect that, that disadvantage can have. Um, and I, I recall 
that idea of the headwind effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you explain that? So, I mean, it's like a head, the headwind effect is a way of sort of describing that for some students, there are just greater challenges in life. It's like running into a headwind. But for mm. some kids, they've got a stronger headwind than others. Mm. You know, mm. it, it, is, it is making it harder for them to progress. And that can help explain why um, some students from more disadvantaged backgrounds through the course of their educational journey um, may not achieve as highly over time as others. And that's something we've got to be mindful of, that we're not sort of continuing to reinforce that headwind by denying students the opportunity, but rather really actively seeking ways in which we can help kids from different backgrounds um, in their learning. What are some of the other factors outside the school, say with the parents or the community, that might have an impact on, on the learning of um, students from disadvantaged backgrounds? Yeah, it's... It, there's a lot of variation is one of the things to say and it can really differ from family to family and from, from different settings. What we tend to see though is for some students from disadvantaged backgrounds, if a lot of the research tends to show that families that have a high level of education in, in the family's history, for example, it can be little things like there's more books in the house, more academic activities happen more regularly, even your visits to museums or the theatre or extracurricular activities. Um, might be a more regular part of life. But on the opposite hand, it's, it's sometimes harder for families who don't have those opportunities or haven't had those opportunities previously, um, especially when there's other demands in life. If you've got um, children, for example, whose uh, parents work really long hours or weekends and so there's limited mm -hmm. opportunities for them to go and access after-school activities or to go and do those extra sort of enrichment activities, um, that's often why uh, families and students from disadvantaged backgrounds really rely more heavily on the school to provide the learning opportunities. The research literature tells us that grouping and tracking can be very, very controversial. What is the current thinking around the um, benefits of grouping? Yeah, so grouping for teaching or instruction is an example of a really contested topic. and. The research is very interesting because there's some mixed outcomes here depending on what it is and how it's done. Um, in general, there's some research to generally indicate that you're almost very classic models of streaming where you just simply separate kids out into five classes like A, B, C, D, E and then teach them all the same. Might not be that necessarily an effective practice. And there's, there's probably some good reasons why. It's because we're not then necessarily using the classes or the groups to help meet the needs of students. Where the research is quite strong though is about really purposeful gifted education programs that might use a class. So things like an extension class, for example. Um, they've been shown to be quite effective, especially when the class is purposeful. They're specifically trying to meet the needs of the students in the class. And in particular, that's where the differentiated learning happens. They're able to group more students together so that um, who maybe share a common stage of learning and that can make things like extension and enrichment a little bit easier for teachers to facilitate. It's, it's really about the learning, you know, and as teachers I think we understand that, is that it's, it's the learning that is done in the classroom that's going to be what makes a difference for students. So if we've got a group of um, advanced learners, we need to make sure that the, uh, the learning is qualitatively different, it's challenging, it's going to extend them beyond where they currently are and avoid the issues of boredom or disengagement that might ensue. And some of the flexibility in grouping as well in that students can perhaps move in and out of groups depending on where they are in their learning and the power of formative assessment in maybe changing the groups when necessary. Mm. 
Yes, it needs to be flexible. Um, even with our extension classes, it's flexible. If someone's not, not happy there, uh, we, we can move them. If we think someone really needs, needs more, we can move them in. Yeah. Flexibility is key. As a high school teacher, every time I go into primary schools, I'm always <laughs> impressed at how primary school teachers are able to, you know, have different groups operating and different mm. tasks and things like yeah, that, especially okay. around like reading and um, mm. literacy and numeracy. Mm. You've been listening to the CZ podcast series produced by the Centre for Education, Statistics and Evaluation, part of the New South Wales Department of Education. For more great publications and podcasts on effective practices in education, visit the CESI website at cese.nsw.gov.au. You can subscribe to our podcast series on your favourite podcast app so you don't miss an episode.